Hello, and welcome to episode three of Poetry Worth Hearing, hosted by me, Kathleen McPhillamy, and with music by Alex Heen. This episode begins with two poems by Sarah Watkinson, followed by an interview with Sarah, where she talks about writing science poetry and how, in the present time, we should write about nature. As usual, the text of the poems and information about the poets are available at poetryworthhearing.biz. Submissions in the form of four-minute recordings should be sent to poetryworthhearing at gmail.com. So we start with Sarah Watkinson. Her first poem, Rural Assets, appears in her recently published collection, Photovoltaic. The second is on display at the Oxford University Natural History Museum and is part of an exhibition on biodiversity. Rural Assets, Blenheim. Underfoots, not dirt, not soil, but earth, skin of the planet where we live, allowed by leaves. This morning bluebell shoots poke up. It's spring. Moss glows green in the wood, paths run with water, snails are on the move. Sun spotlights the palace. Let's deny our dread at the jaundiced field. Think instead how like prairie a huge field can feel. How a sea of barley covered the earth last summer, foreground to a vista of the palace. Let's pretend we're not offended at the dead leaves of sprayed-off oat grass. Forget our fear that water flows nitrate glutted even from the spring. The farmer's doing his best. We spring to his defence and praise how the field is spread with sewage sludge, how flood water drains off through new ditches, how gaily his earth-moving JCB shines through quickthorn bare of leaves, his entangled banks richer than the lawns of the palace. The park is let for shooting. Corporations fill the palace with away days and silver service lunches. By late spring, guides will talk of Blintheim, seen through tapestry leaves on the eve of battle, show private rooms, Tatler, the field, on rosewood tables, the animatronic ghost. Who on earth eats round a Rococo gold centrepiece? The groundwater that rises at Rosamond's well, unholy water, sells for souvenirs, custom bottled for the palace, linked to a legend. King Henry and his girl, the earth briefly theirs alone, the wildwood leaf dark in spring, myth-haunted, concealing, with no house or field near, horned figures, magic, eyes behind the leaves. Then only autumn yellowed the leaves, lakes and streams glittered with living water. The ploughman dreamed his fair field full of folk who'd never see a palace, New grass and milk made their spring, creatures beyond imagining their earth. This spring walking leaves earth on my boots. My house is no palace, but I have hot water and my study where I write and field calls. Black Box, with lines from Robert Frost and John Donne. You think, as the leaves go down into the dark decade and the woods drip with winter, the world's whole sap is sunk. But buried isn't dead. You only need a child's small microscope to see inhabitants of this fermenting compost, 
arthropods, larvae, snails and tardigrades, grazing fungal threads. A seething crowd inhabits dark horizons underground. Layer on layer on layer of leaf fall. In November woods you might hear, as if there's somebody there, a scuffle in the litter. It's only a blackbird tugging up a worm by one end. Think of his body as the apex of an upside-down food chain ascending from the cold furnaces of fungi. Down in the earth, their filaments melt fallen trees, break and reclaim the woody architecture of daylight and photosynthesis. Sarah is a plant scientist and at the forefront of efforts to get nature study back into schools. She's also a strong proponent of bringing science and poetry together, having worked with Jenny Lewis to organise SIPO conferences at Oxford since 2016. I started this interview by asking her why she felt that the Anthropocene demanded a new approach to writing nature poetry. I was taking my cue very much from Steve Ely, who's written this very innovative new book called The European Eel. And what really appealed to me, because my background is in science, was that Steve did a very extensive study of the European eel before he even started to write an extensive study of the eel itself and of the science about it. And I found it absolutely delightful because of the way he turned very sciencey words and technological words into beautiful poetry. It was a very carefully considered epic monology, and it really, really worked but because of the beauty of the language, I think. Steve Ely writes a lot about human beings and what it is to be a human being and how your relationship to everything else should be. And he feels that there's an ethical issue here, not just a linguistic issue. So he's keen on writing in a scientifically and ethically credible way. Those are his words. And I, I just love that idea. And the other thing that's in his essay about writing the European eel, he writes very interestingly about the what you don't know. And I think that that's a bit of interesting common ground between science and poetry, because before you start doing a bit of science, you do what they call a literature review. And that's to find the boundaries where, where knowledge ends and you can only guess. And he says, this area where there's no knowledge is like, it's uncharted territory where the imagination is free to roam. And I found this a very exciting idea because I think this is where this unknown area where imagination is free to roam is the common ground between science and poetry. And if you're a science scientist, your job then is to guess what might be true and then to test it with experiments, which you describe carefully to all the other scientists and you honestly describe your results, and you do your very best to get at the material facts. But if you're a poet, you're not doing that. You know what's known, which I think is important, and I think sometimes um, nature poets haven't really bothered about what's known, but to me it appeals very much to try and know what's known and then jump off the cliff. I think my ideal nature poet is somebody who is a, a really good poet, but who does a little bit of research. I mean pays respect to the material by trying to find out what already is known before um, embarking on, on the poetry. And mm -hmm. I completely agree with Neil Astley in um, his anthologies that poetry is about being human. Mm -hmm. And to be human is to have these feelings. 
and, and to have them in a landscape because we are part of nature. We're not just human beings and everything else is non-human. That's not the way it goes at all. We are, we are part of Darwin's tree of life and we all belong together on the planet. And of course, we're delighted with some things and terrified by others, like Wordsworth's huge cliff, which I think is a mm, wonderful yeah. bit about the sheer terror of being alone in nature and how you feel that you're, you might be sort of morally found out by nature. Do you remember he's stolen a boat and he quickly yeah. rose back? He's so yeah. terrified by... I think it's really important to be alone in nature and not see it as some twee and a sort of cartoony thing that's fun for kids and children, but something you grow out of. The scientist tests his or her yes. hypothesis. What does the poet do that's the equivalent of that when this, the imagination gets going? What they produce is a poem. Is it art? Is it authentic? Is it genuine? Is it truthful within its frame of reference? Does it speak to other people? Does it enlarge our sensations? Does it give a feeling of authentic emotion? Um, and I think the European eel comes up trumps on all of this. Mm. The editor of the Rialto drew attention to a poem that I'd never come across before, but all poets must know, and it's um, Thomas Traherne's poem, Wonder. How like an angel came I down, how bright are all things here, when first among his works I did appear, oh, how his glory shone. I mean, it is just, beautiful and, and deeply moving. And I think that's what poetry does. I don't, I'm not sure I've ever read a scientific paper where my hair stood on end, <laughs> or not for that sort of joyous reason. The scientist writing a paper is doing something different because now there's an enormous amount that's known and an even greater amount that isn't known. And Dennis Noble in his book about how science, scientists do things talked about it's like building a cathedral, and each individual worker is only putting on a stone, mm. uh, but they've got to do it according to instructions and according to the overall pattern, and I think that's what's happening. So mm. a scientist is writing all these graphs and things, but it doesn't mean they know everything. It just means that they're fitting in with um, a formula which allows them to collaborate worldwide on a particular quite narrow enterprise. How do we write about the rest of creation with respect from our very human perspective. I've just been reading Catherine Tower's book, Oh, from the, what she said at the launch and what Don Patterson said at the launch. It was clear that a huge amount of thought has gone into this, this question. She knows her stuff scientifically, mm -hmm. and yet she's writing a chosen Shakespeare's pattern, The Seven Ages. So she's done The Seven Ages of an Oak Tree, and she uses the third person but she talks about the loves of the oak. And I have a feeling it's, it sort of gives me a slightly old English feel that what are, what are the loves of an oak? Can I read you the first true love of an oak? Regarding the first true love of an oak, which is light, a tree will always mention the sun in its manner of growing. For who won't mention too much the one that they love? Like a quirk of the tongue, which can't help curling to make the shape of the name of the lover. Thus an oak on its own in a field will form itself into a dome, making of the sun a god and of its leaves a worshipful company. I think that is absolutely brilliant. And I think in a way it gets you away from this very solipsistic lyrical eye, which I'm slightly allergic to when you're writing nature poetry. The other person who, whose work I find very, everybody finds very interesting is Peter Larkin. 
And he has this little book published by Guillemot called Seven Leaf Sermons, which I greatly admire. It's, it's third person because it's very difficult to do it any other way. Different foregones, energy, sooner a leaf leth lethargy before spike zones of rain. Deciduous leaves were always thornless unless under hail. A leaf, leaf breathes in rain but drinks from the root. It sounds like soothsaying somehow. It's, it, I can see why you, can, you, you think of this as a sermon. It's as though somebody who has actually understood how it's working is trying to explain in relatively simple terms how it works. And I, I like the idea of the leaf, leaf breathing and drinking, and this all seems to me to be very truthful. Philip Gross manages anthropomorphism perfectly successfully in mode music in Love Songs of Carbon. And I like this very much. Mold music. Mold music one, alongside, always, the air invisibly alive with them, these ever-present presences, mold spores. They mean us no harm, they have nothing to say or sing, but simplify, or in our terms, decay. Lay down your intricate molecules, fruit, meat, skin flakes, Reclamation crew, night cleaners, makers and breakers of what we let slip. First the self-engorgement of the peach, then it's shriveling, and so on. And I'm beginning to wonder um, if I'm really against anthropomorphism. I think it bothers me a little bit in popular science. There's quite a lot of anthropomorphism in, around in the desire to think that trees collaborate with each other and look after their babies. Because trees are so different from us, and they are so much older than us, and in a lot of ways they're more sophisticated than us. But we tend to be very speciesist, and we think just because we run about and think we're better, but trees do other things and better than we do. <laughs> Going back, not necessarily to being a poet, but to being a human, what is our relationship to the rest of creation? Are we, have we got dominion? Are we stewards? Or is it something else? The King James Bible calls it dominion, and some other translations say stewardship. And of course, ecologists prefer stewardship, because I think we're, we're simply aware of the exploitative and extractive aspects of human behaviour, which has developed from thinking that nature is for us in some sort of God-given way. And that was all very well when we just grew some cabbages or whatever we grew, but once you start going around killing and eating the animals and poisoning the fields, as we do now, it's um, sad. There are some ecological theorists who would really want humans to back off altogether and feel almost that uh, the sooner humans are over, the better. How do you feel about that? I feel strongly opposed to that. Um, I think humans should glory in the fact that we are part of nature. And it's absolutely wonderful. It fills me with sadness that people can grow up without access to nature. As, as John Burnside said, we are, and the, after the psalmist, we're all one breath. We have failed, we failed the generations that followed us by demoting natural history. And I'm very excited indeed now that things are at last beginning to move the other way. And it looks as though we shall have a GCSE in natural history and that nature tables might return to primary schools and that we might go for nature walks again, because 
there was just nothing like it. And the idea of being brought up in a flat with no access to green space horrifies me. This allowing us to think that we're not dependent on nature is so dangerous. I went today to a meeting, um, a conference about um, current policy in England about conserving nature and the idea of natural capital and trying to value what nature does for us so that it, accountants can put it into their calculations and it can go into legislations and we can uh, sort of attach metrics to, to nature because it's so desperately important to restore it, not just to conserve it, but to restore it and also to put people back in touch with it. And I'm delighted that it's beginning to get traction. There was a beautiful sonnet in Deciduous Woods St. Bridget's Day, the second one. Oh, yes. That was a conscious science poem. And I had, this poem took me ages to write. And I'd been reading a book about the sense, sensing of plants. And I had been doing quite a lot of reading about how they perceive the light mm. and see more wavelengths than we do. And I wrote an un unacceptably sciencey poem and read it to my workshop group. And it was clearly clear to me and to them that it was absurd. It was like a bi biology lesson. And, and it was only when I tried hard to turn it into a more accurate poem, if you like. I mean, sometimes if you use scientific words, you're copying out slightly from explaining what you really mean. I think the thing about science poetry is it's important really to know what you're talking about and to do your homework like Steve Ely so spectacularly did. Then if you forget the homework and just let it, rotate in your mind for a little bit and then write the poem without trying to convey too much of what you've learned. You don't have to get everything in, but your mind is informed. And that was what, that's the word that Steve Ely used about photovoltaic, that it was informed mm. nature poetry. And I was really delighted yesterday because I went to the first of a series of lectures about ecosystems, which is based around a picture exhibition of paintings by Kurt Jackson at the Oxford University Museum. The first speaking event in connection mm -hmm. with it was a, a lecture from the ecosystem scientist Yadvinder Mali yesterday. But he said a very interesting thing. He said, as you go around the exhibition, you see the, the beauty of the landscapes. What a lot of mystery and unknown there is there. And it's all very well for the ecologists to produce all these graphs and tables and things so that you think they, they know it all. But actually, there's so much, much, much more that isn't known. And really, the world is much fuzzier and full of mystery and interest than we think. You asked me if there was something that I had hoped to mention, and I, of course, I, had, I remembered. And it was something that the poet Katrina Porteous said in the very good introduction to her book called Edge. She did a very interesting collaboration with some astrophysicists. What a challenge. We used to see the solar system as including in, included in nature. We tend to think, Nowadays, we tend to use nature to mean natural history, but the whole, everything, material in the material universe, we see as nature. She was writing poetry about what Hubble saw and what we could deduce about the, the satellites of the moons of Saturn and so on. And she made use of data that had come in via, via extremely sophisticated instruments and felt that this was entirely appropriate for poetry. And she felt that science takes that sort of technology that science uses is completely permissible. In fact, shouldn't shouldn't really be ignored because it's just a way of expanding our human senses, extending the reach of human senses. Very empowering to know that nobody knows it all and really we don't know very much. Yeah. So we're all moving off the edge of knowledge into a sea of ignorance. 
move on to our other poets, all of whom, I think, share that sense of wonder. Some are writing about nature, some about humans, and some about humans in nature. We start off with Andrew Dixon, himself a retired physicist, who shares Sarah's desire for accuracy in his writing, but who brings to his poetry an intense feeling for the sound of language. Plain trees. The old man never really talked about the war, excepting when a TV programme set him off. The well-worn reels of London in the Blitz, another documentary. God, how he'd huff and puff, yell at the TV. We've seen it all before. Enough. And then he'd pause, not wanting to go on, except for saying, I was there, you know, young man. The city lit up like a bloody birthday cake. His hands would shake before he settled back and dropped his voice to say, I'll tell you one day why I talk like that. We are in Hyde Park amongst the towering trees. He whispers confidentially as if to mark respect. These plane trees took the force of bombing too, gave lives as real to them as mine to you. And others, they still carry injuries they bore when shrapnel ripped into their heartwood core. And for the many buildings round the park, the plane trees were protection from the shock. How many Londoners know this, he asked. The courting couples, people with their dogs, the old, the young, the children at their play. Do they go home quite innocent of Hyde Park's history? And then he told me what he wanted me to know, why he comes here when he has the chance, to find his memories and give thanks, that in the heat and hell of strife, the plane trees, he was sure, once saved his life. And now, two poems from Sharon Green. The first is written as a response to the climate crisis, but it's in its imagery is horribly pertinent to what is happening at the moment. A Highborn, what was wished for. The plants had been crying out for weeks in a tone that was at first round sob, then croaking rasp. A verdant request grown crackled and parched. Daily their colours deepened in ravishing desperation, a rain dance mistaken for attention-seeking. It was the thrusting thirst of dying petals. Then at dawn an amber sky signalled change. The sun was ominously blocked. The heavens grew flinty and weighted. The earth waited. In the distance there was a rumble of disquiet, an impudent threat, mounting in intensity, drawing nearer. An army now of stomping boots, accompanied by the pent-up tears of mothers. Heavy drops planted at random on the dusty ground, punishingly plentiful. The argument escalated, crossed boundaries, prodding the torpid unprepared. 
So disconcerted was the ragged rain, fleeing from the uneven battle, it now darted to the ground in spears, pierced past vegetation to provoke a pungent petrichorus. Whilst the thunder receded, the rain persisted. Waterfalls from an unfathomable source, sheets and curtains dragged down to blanket and smother. With no time to acclimatise, no time to savour or swallow, the baked crust gulped down the deluge with startled speed until it couldn't. Stomping pent-up tears, ragged darting spears pierce past pungent petrichor. Shall I read you? Shall I read you? Will your words skip from the page and tantalise my tongue? Twist and turn and tumble out in torrents or trickle timorously? Shall I read you? Can I process your emotions and intent? Can I place myself within your tortured exuberance? Empathise with your screams? Shall I read you? Will my heart beat to your rhythm and vibrate with your vitality? My lungs swell with the weight of your dreams and propel them to the ears of angels. Shall I read you? Margot Myers is a brilliant and sometimes sardonic observer of the human and natural world. In these three poems, however, I think we see perhaps her gentler side and uh, the farmer's wife and the astronomer's daughter, I think, reveal her capacity for imaginative empathy. Mimosa. Here you are in the garden, out yellowing the yellow daffodil, upstaging the polyanthus, cheerleading spring and sending the black bee into spasms. Your pom-poms pungent and powdered in champagne pollen, as if this were the Riviera or a bar in Mayfair or along the train track between Florence and Pisa where I first saw you floozing in yellow. Oh, let me pick you and sit you on the kitchen table in a vase, just thinking about you. I want to sneeze. The Farmer's Wife, after Charlotte Mew. My quick little wife runs circles round me. Sparks flew from her hair, and in the swing of the gate, the frosty air, oh, the sharp young musk of her. She'd dance sometimes, then curl into my arms, and gazing, honey-eyed, would nudge a kiss against my neck, as if it were a lover's bite. At night by the window, she'd watch the moon as it flickered through clouds, like a bowl of bright fish. I brought her fruit, the sticky thighs of chicken, tender rabbit breast, and she would lick her lips, half glance, 
the slope of her throat like snow. I sleep alone. Last night, I found her shivering by the door, awake in heat to every skulking thing, her thick brown hair grown rank, but not for me. For me are scats of fur, the skin of grapes, crushed bone. The Astronomer's Daughter You cut your teeth on the planisphere, dribble the gilded frame. You like to spin its disc to the north horizon, turn day into night, time into space. I speak of coordinates, latitudes and hemispheres, declinations, ascensions, while you love to circle the deep blue chart with the tiny moons of your fingernails, tracing each silvery constellation, Andromeda, Orion, our Alpha and our Omega. Sometimes you press your feet into my lap, flex your toddler knees and stand stiff, straight as a rocket, as if to shoot the star-wheeling sky and dispute the science with innumerate angels and dance on the head of a pin. The next three poems by Claire Cox take us back into the world of science or more correctly, into the world we inhabit, if we do not take due care of what science has brought us. Claire Cox is interested in poetry and disaster, and these three poems all link to nuclear accidents. Accidentals Listen, I've clicking bones. Marrow reactive, I cleaned out my isotopes before you were born. Pinch your safety between my finger and pricking thumb. Here's a wind for you to outrun, a broken road to gust down. Tuck your families under your wing and motor hard. Creep back home and bury your garden topsoil parcelled in blue tarpaulin. Bury your garden under your garden. Cover over with gleaming white gravel. Its sparkle will help you forget. Number four reactor, 26 April 1986. 1.23am and we're dancing, palm to sweaty palm, swapping partners in the tubular dark. How the steam excites us. It goads us to strip off our clothes, crash into 1,400 ruptured walls. You send your boron, too late, too insubstantial, like the iodine you will guzzle to fill your thyroids, or the vodka rations oily daytime burn you think will flush us from the greying flesh you strain to shovel and to bury. 1.24 a.m. and we've cracked open your roof, scorched the night. From a mile high we see flame and debris, fire engines small as toys. Snatched by the north wind, some of us die young, others Eddy, endure beyond biblical ages, interstellar ghosts of hammer 
and sickle, a crackle in the blood. Windborne, 1986 I thought of holding you as a buzzard called across the valley from behind the pines, each spry needle dusted and ticking. And eastwards, we wondered, what was over there? Lifting our nostrils like hunting dogs, we scented the source of it, turned our backs to the water, waves bright as isotopes. Next, we have two poems by Eva Val, taken from her recent dual language pamphlet, Poems in the Hourglass. Eva's poems evoke imaginary landscapes, and she reads them here in English and German. Blue Bird The tiny thing that you always kept to your heart lies in a cradle of dark-scented wood, pillow and cover of banyan-tree hair. You remember. You open the window in this dark room of yours to let in light and breath, sweetness and saltiness of air. The tiny thing starts to move, gently spreading its feathers, stretching clumsy wings. At dusk, it will fly. Das kleine Ding, das du immer in deinem Herzen trugst, liegt in einer Wiege aus duftendem Holz. Kissen und Bettbezug gewebt aus dem Haar des Banyanbaums. Du erinnerst dich. Öffnest das Fenster deiner dunklen Kammer, lässt Licht hinein und Atem, Süße und Salz der Luft. Das kleine Ding beginnt sich zu bewegen, spreizt die klammen Federn. Bei Dämmerung wird er fliegen, der blaue Vogel. Blue Hour When evening has fallen, I take off my fur and put my feathers on. At dawn, I let go my nightbird's gown and see hair grow to fur again. Thick as felt in winter, wide and celestial blue in summer, I wear myself. In spring and autumn, I cross a passage in between. I walk through trees over mountains and wander under river streams, I dusk and dawn. Dämmerung, wenn der Abend fällt, ziehe ich meinen Pelz aus und kleide mich mit Federn. Zum Morgen entlasse ich mein Nachtvogelkleid und sehe Haar zu Fell wachsen. Dick wie Filz im Winter, weit und himmelsblau im Sommer, trage ich mich selbst. Im Frühling und im Herbst überquere ich einen Zwischenraum. 
Gehe durch Bäume, über Berge und wandere unter Flussströmen. Ich morgen graue und Abend blaue. We move away from Germany to the very English poetry of Robert Etty. In this extract from his Zoom reading on January the 24th this year, he reads poems set in Lincolnshire, the county where he was born and where he still lives. A winter eclipse in the co-op car park. Morning's been too cold to face the day and dawn hasn't really looked like rising. But suddenly light spills over the hoarding onto cars huddling together for warmth and sprays all the windscreens and mirrors in gold. The sun seems to shine out from everyone on the gleaming paths to the ticket machines. And even squinting, I recognize none of the haloed semi-translucent shoppers. When the right size of slowing bus blocks out the real sun, an angel I'd spotted hovering ahead turns out to be only Alan Alcock, who's no more unearthly than average, but whose radiant hair and breath have been putting a different complexion on matters. They do it again when the bus pulls away, and the essence of Alan re-emerges, if not as ineffably. All right, he asks me, demystified now, yet still not quite as he used to be. Then shopping happens because shopping must, and we who've been bathed in unusual light have turned our thoughts to potatoes and such like. Morning wears on and we stagger through lunchtime. The co-op car parks gritting its teeth for the emptiness and a widespread frost. This is a poem which I think I meant to write for a long time, but it took me, I don't know, 30 years or so to write it. And it's based on a memory of infant school and the word ever, which I used to think about without understanding, of course, and I don't understand it now. But the poem's called Ever. In the infant school with the field around it, ever was a daily word repeated together, but never thought about or explained. Ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Sun beamed in through the ceiling high windows that Mrs. Plant with the light blue hair pulled open with a gold hook on a pole. And ever seemed something to do with the sun and the field that you couldn't see to the ends of, where combine harvesters blew bits of straw through the crisscross fence in the summer term. And no one would ever go far from here, except Lena Novak, who went to Glossop, and no one had ever heard of Glossop, ever had something to do as well with Anthony 
who lived down the road in a house on its own with chickens and ditches and who they said had a poorly heart so he didn't come to school every day and with closing your eyes in the biggest room and a green hill far away. This is a poem about this um, expression, take care. You know, when you leave the shop and they say, take care and you take care. And they seem to say it more and more the older you get. So I get it all the time. And this is a poem called Caretakers. Alistair said, take care. So I took it in much the same way that I take a flyer for pizza for two if the hander out looks chilled to the bone and is clutching a blue fistful more. I've never called in to sample a pizza and didn't expect the care to resurface, but here it is at my elbow now, adding its weight to assorted cares I stockpile about my person. I'd gladly give it the push, short shrift, a hard time, the elbow, but carefree's easier to say than to be. I understand Alistair more fully now. Next time I see him, I'll say, take care and hope he's better at handling it. This next poem also goes back some distance to my village past. It's about being led to church in the evenings by my mother and sitting there and thinking about it and how I didn't understand much of what was going on but it stays with you somehow. This is a poem called In Perpetuity circa 1958. Not everything carries on for long. Bad haircuts, bad colds and bad luck have their day but all of them face the fact that it's over and leave us to cope with the aftermath. When continuance drags on and on, it's only a matter of sitting it out. One even song, when my trousers were short, I heard how Jesus told the disciples, according to Matthew, who wrote it down, Lo, I am with you always. No one batted an elderly eyelid along the brown pew my legs had stuck to. Matthew had sounded convinced enough, True lovers lived happily ever after, and my mother thumbed me a tree ball mint. Ever unto the end, even unto the end of the world, read the rector, a man able also to read children's minds. Assured of these and other fragments, I grew to witness longevities such as Mr. McQuirk's unbroken attendance at double maths after art on Friday. Double maths seemed to exist beyond time, and Mr. McQuirk was outwitting death, but the dust motes in shifting shafts of sunlight that halo old school kids when they're not looking were not going to hang around. Then the rector drove off to a higher church. A house fire outwitted Mr. McQuirk, and miscellaneous conclusions were come to, not all of which were very conclusive. Ending per se is never ended at all. And often the end begins something else. There's a crucifix opposite Barclays in case that's how believing works and perfumes, rings and eons called eternity. 
Mr. McQuirk didn't cross my mind after Mr. McConaughey Dodd took over, although it's clear he'd intended to. I've been thinking I'll buy some longer grey shorts and trot along to Evensong, but a good science book might be more efficacious. We've put the clocks neatly back where they came from, and yellow leaves and the geese have landed. Cycles like these, taking turns to turn take, create their own everlastingness. And we've always had the between times to live in. Chances are we're between times now. This is a poem called Unlikely Weather on the Marsh in March. For what it's worth, the first day was Wednesday. At noon, having climbed without looking down, the temperature passed the 20 mark. Not out yet, leaves twitched and stretched in surprise. Mud steamed and dried to an August-type ochre. Blue sky balanced on summer coat spire and March faced an identity crisis. Out at the school, doors and windows were open. Red-fleshed children in half-buttoned shirts filled bottles at taps and spat at each other, while teaching assistants were checking their watches and saying it felt like sports day. This was happening in lesson time, but Mrs West didn't bother to whistle. Afternoon sprawled in its own heavy heat, and the day's whole point was forgotten about. Cows understand every kind of weather, but couldn't explain today. Parents in shorts met sun-dried kids and rushed them home to the fridge. Tea should have been salad. Dusk should have lasted till 10 to 10 on a sleepless night. But this was March, not BST yet, and the central heating came on at four. But Thursday turned out to be almost as balmy. Blossom and more buds exploded on Friday and people started to rethink their life in the light of the Saturday sun. A poem about Sunday follows below, but of course it didn't. I'll end with a short poem, which is about the Lincolnshire expression. I don't know if you, if you know it where you live, but it's, it's uh, the expression is, while the weather takes up, and it means that you do something for a while, and the weather is supposed to get better while you do it, and then you go out into the sun. And the poem is comes from that expression, and the times in my life I've I've heard it said and thought, well, what on earth does that mean? But, but this is while the weather. Stay and sit, he'd say, while the weather takes up. We'd sit and look at piled clouds hardly moving, swift circling. Plums weighing heavy and purpling, the old black tomcat from the end house asleep. And drink tea from blue mugs and eat gone soft biscuits and hear someone's motor mower choking all while the weather took up. The weather took everything up, but not yet. Diana Bell also celebrates the local in her poem, which is set in the black country 
and which she reads in her best black country accent. Black Country Home Where'd y'all come from? I come from where the air smelt of sulphur and the smog turned off all the lights. Where trucks rumbled all night and spat coal on the tracks. Where furnishes belched red hot and cooling towers breathed grey breath. Where I heard miners' boots marching to work before to alight. And women lining up for the buzz to the factory. Where the steel press puts full stops in your head all day. And the men drunk eight pints of beer at night and went home singing. I come from where the cut passes under the road and we walk the towpath on Sundays. Where you can get your food on tick and the neighbour keeps a pig in the garden. Where the kids played on the street at night and took the little ones to school. Where mam took her washing to the laundrette in her pram and carried the babby. Where you were always asked in for a copper if you knocked on door. Where the bus driver who comes from the Caribbean calls you petal. And people smile on the street and ask, are you all right, kid? The next two poems by Susanna Houston are in their different ways affirmations of the way people live. Coat rack. On and off they go, some dampened with tears or snow, depending on how the day went and where feet made their way. Were you received, rejected, don't know? The coats clean themselves at the front doors of our lives because we continue to go out, to go on, with mum and the kettle close by and the shoe rack waiting to understand why. Jenny. Genevieve never knew her arms were too short, her legs were too long to play. She just kept going out to the softball field every day. She never saw the faces that were making fun of her. She sat there in the ranks on the bench giving thanks cause this was baseball to her. Genevieve made her way into the towns, on the buses, into the shows. She kept playing though nobody knowed she didn't really have the skill. By damn, she had the will. Go on and knock one out of the park for us, Jenny. Knock one out of the park for us girls. You stood up proud when you sat down on backs of buses while police batons twirled. Knock one out of the park for all your sisters. They sent the men off to war while you were fighting yours. You bat like an eagle soars. Your borrowed mitt the crowd adores. Brave black one, just hear them roar. And our last poet, Lynn Thornton, transfers us to celestial fields in two poems influenced by her reading of Dante's Paradiso. So my first poem is uh, called Ascent, 
um, and it's inspired by Dante's Paradiso, Canto 18. What can I tell you that it was spring, flowers trapped in their abundance, gentians, hepatica, speedwell, yellow archangel, all under a rainbow sky? What can I tell you that the climb had been hard, that this forest was like none other, that there was no going back? A curtain had dropped on all that deep greening. What can I tell you? That arcs of blue light silvered trees, that the soft cadence of water merged with the trilling of birds, that a girl, timid as a fawn, called to me across the silver stream. What can I tell you? That her honeyed words sang like the sea, that she was Venus, Ceres, Persephone, and that her image transcended everything, and that it was enough. Almost Paradise, after Dante's Paradiso. How is it I've arrived here in this elsewhere world, so bright it couldn't be filmed in common sepia, colours beyond description, an artist's palette falls short. I've lived in monochrome till now. Across the water, Virgil's ghosts, dazzling beneath the lapis sky, beckon by the shoreline, then become almost invisible in this radiance that has its own dynamic that wills me on. But I stand transfixed between crystal blue and gold, between the forest and the open pasture, between the oak and the quivering palm, between the shingled roof and the lit fire, I clutch a bunch of primroses and gentians from a meadow of that other world, too timid to advance into brightness. Well, that's all for episode three. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Thanks to all contributors, and please remember, if you would like to submit poetry worth hearing, Send your recordings, up to four minutes, and the texts to poetryworthhearing at gmail.com. That's poetryworthhearing, all one word, at gmail.com. More details on how to submit can be found on the website poetryworthhearing.biz, where you will also find the texts of the poems in this episode, details about the poets, and information about their publications. 